Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So today we're here with, well, someone who doesn't need much introduction to birders, but Ken Kaufman. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good, good. So, Ken, you know, we know you from, you know, the advanced the advanced birding guides and your other field guides and Kingbird Highway. Um, you know, how did you get into birding when you were a kid? Well, I was really lucky um, that uh, my parents, uh, my parents were not specifically interested in nature, but they, they had a lot of books in the house. And even when I was a little kid, there were a lot of picture books around. So I would look at picture books with pictures of, elephants and dinosaurs and bears and the solar system and volcano eruptions and things, and then go out and wander around the neighborhood. And this was the suburbs in South Bend, Indiana, so we didn't have any of those things. Um, And for a long time, you know, the birds were just beneath my notice. They were too small, really, to be interesting. But about the time I was six and I was starting to give up on finding you know, wild camels or elephants or anything, I thought, well, I'll I'll take a day or two and figure out what these birds are. And I've been working on that ever since. You know, it's it's funny. You you tell the story, you know, the having the picture guides, like my gateway is I had a great aunt who gave me uh, a a subscription to National Geographic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That sort of thing, uh, that can have such an impact on, on a kid. Just, um, just, just being exposed to something like that, you know, even if you're in a situation where you can't see a lot of the natural world directly, even being able to see pictures of it mm-hmm. uh, can can really change the course of your life. Yeah. So what a great thing for all of us that you, you know, got to look at those pictures oh. in National Geographic when you were a little kid. I know, and everyone thought I was just looking at it for, you know, the naked tribes people. <laughs> I, I don't remember seeing those. That, <laughs> I guess <laughs> that never came up. Um, yeah. So you know, so you started getting interested in birds from these picture guides as you you aged. And so, what was you know? Did, did you fi- come into a birding mentor, or how did it really find a hold on you? Um, I didn't really have mentors up close. Um, I was very lucky that a, a distant relative sent me. Uh, you know, sort of the word got out around the family that little Kenny was getting interested in birds. And so a distant relative sent me some old Audubon magazines and some books, including some things by Roger Peterson, mm-hmm. including his old uh, Birds Over America, which had been published before I was born. Right. And so I read those things. When I, whenever I couldn't be outside, I was reading these old Audubon magazines or these books by Peterson and others. And, you know, reading them to the point where I had whole chapters memorized. And so I guess in a way, Roger Peterson was my, my mentor, even though I didn't meet him until I was 19. Oh, you, you met him when you were, when you were 19, isn't the first time yeah. you met him? What, what kind of guy was Roger Tory Peterson? Oh, pretty amazing character. I mean, incredibly talented, but in person he was really modest. I mean, people who didn't meet him might have seen all this stuff. You know, he got, he got a lot of... Um, a lot of recognition, a lot of praise during his life. And so, you know, people would imagine, oh, this guy has been, he's gotten so much um, publicity that he must be conceited. But he wasn't in person. If you, you ran into him, he was sort of like a slightly absent-minded uncle or something. You know, a guy from down the street who 
And, you know, nice, easygoing, but, you know, very intensive when he would hear a bird. You know, you talking to him in conversation and, you know, a field sparrow would sing off in the distance and his head would turn and he'd say, you know, field sparrow, and then go back to the conversation. <laughs> that, that's a very common affliction. I suffer from that <laughs> one myself. I call it I give people the finger, which is this. <laughs> Just hold your thought. <laughs> I'll be back. That's the bird, right? It's the bird, and, and uh, you know. So you 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 you're a young birder, and so were you birding predominantly in Indiana as a kid. That's right. Yeah, I, I started uh, in Indiana when I was uh, like six years old. About the time of my ninth birthday, we moved to Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. which is you know moving from one midwestern city to another. But to me, you know, we were moving farther toward the southwest, and so I had all these in my imagination, all these ideas of things that would be around. And pretty much the, you know, the suburban birds in Wichita were the same ones that had been in South Bend. But there were a few different ones. Um, the, uh, for example, there were scissor-tailed flycatchers, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, one of the world's great birds. I mean, <laughs> scissor-tails, they're beautiful, beautiful. I mean, they it's the Oklahoma State bird. It's also called the Texas Bird of Paradise. And just, it's so much more flamboyant than it would need to be. Uh, so those were there. They were great. Um, in winter, we would see Harris' sparrows, which um, mm-hmm. Harris' sparrow is a big, colorful sparrow, and it's not that uh, not that numerous when you go west or east of the Great Plains. But there in Kansas, it was a common winter bird. And then there were western kingbirds in the neighborhood, too. And that uh, sort of became my, uh, my favorite bird for a number of years when I was like 10, 11, 12. And so you, you went on, and then you... You know, the, you you're in Wichita, Kansas. You're a young man. You're birding, and as you get out of high school, you know what was that transition that you know, you said I'm just going to hitchhike and find birds. <laughs> well, I just really had this urge to travel. I mean, Kansas is is good birding. There um, there's there's a lot of migration through there, and you can see. I mean, I um, I would go out. Uh, I, I, there was a friend of mine, Jeff Cox. He was in the same class as I was in in school. And he got interested in birds. We'd ride our bikes around, and we had a couple of other friends who were, you know, we could go out and and do a bicycle uh, big day and get over a hundred species, uh, you know, within twenty miles of our parents' houses. But um, I just had this sense that there were a lot of birds out there that were never going to come to Wichita, mm-hmm. and so I really wanted to uh, to travel, and. Um, the um, this this was in the early 1970s, and the economy wasn't all that good in Wichita at that point. Um, there'd been uh, a downturn in the in the economy there. The uh, the big aircraft companies that were the basis of the economy in Wichita were having some trouble, and there'd been a lot of layoffs. So unemployment was high, and I thought, well, I'm if if I'm going to have a chance to get out there, I should just go out on the road. I you know. I can take the bus out to Arizona. I can just go mm-hmm. out there by, by Greyhound. And so I, that was how I started off. I, I didn't really intend to be hitchhiking all over the place at first. And and so when you, you were, were you 19 at the time when you got on the well, bus? I was 16, actually, when I hit the road. And so did you have someone waiting for you on the other side? Or were you just showing up persona non grata and going to figure it out? <laughs> I, yeah, I was just going to go figure it out. I, you oh, know, wow. I figured that 
I had, you know, you could get a road map that would show you where things were, like, you know, Madeira Canyon is here, and here's uh, the uh, Mount Lemmon Highway, and here's, you know, all these places where I knew there would be some interesting birds. And it wasn't I got out there that it, it sort of dawned on me that you couldn't take the bus to all these places. There wasn't any public transportation, so I had to start uh, thumbing rides to get there. Right. <laughs> so you're six, and your parents let you go. That's the amazing part. Well, I was I was pretty obnoxious, you know. They were probably glad to have me out of the house. <laughs> Much no, more. my my parents were they were pretty amazing people. Um, just um, you know, never never specifically interested in birds, although they became interested later on. You know, after I after I left, it was they you know they started putting out bird feeders and getting into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were just very supportive of anything that they considered to be educational. So, you know, just since I was reading, I was coming home from the library with stacks of books and reading all this stuff about birds and natural history. So they figured, well, this must be educational. So I I think um, in particular, my dad had been very independent when he was a young man. And so he probably figured that I was going to go out on the road anyway. So it was better if they gave me permission. So I would at least stay in touch with them. Right. Those are amazing parents, though, that to have to let the child have that much freedom is really amazing and fortunate for you. you know? Oh, yeah, I, I was I was extremely lucky. And, you know, things have that, that was a different world. You know, back in the early 1970s, I think things were a lot safer. And there mm-hmm. were so many people hitchhiking back then that um, it was just it was an accepted way to get around. Mm-hmm. Things have changed utterly. It's it's hard for for kids today to even imagine what it was like. Well, yeah, now a kid, you know, it's, geez, it had to have parental consent and a guardian and everything else, and you could never yeah. even do it as a, as a sixteen year old kid. And so you go out to Arizona. So what was that first trip out to Arizona? Because you had this, you know, this idea of the mythology of the western southwestern birds. What was that like? Oh, it was it was amazing. Just. Um, I, it's it's really difficult for me to describe. I've I've tried to describe it in writing a couple of times, and just the the astounding sense of going to these new landscapes. And I mean, Southeast Arizona is pretty spectacular anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, to get out there as a sixteen year old coming from the Midwest and see all these mountains and canyons and giant cactus and rattlesnakes and the birds there, seeing things like trogons for the first time. Uh, it was just, uh, it just felt like an extraordinary adventure. And every day I was surrounded by, surrounded by novelty and mm-hmm. out there, you know, trying to look things up. I was, you know, of course I was trying to figure out the, the butterflies and the different kinds of cactus and the different reptiles too, but mostly the birds and just, I, it was like a rush of new information um, every, every minute that I was awake. Uh, for weeks at a time, and um, it was really an astounding thing. I, I can't and I can't imagine when you come back to school that fall. What did you do with your summer vacation? <laughs> I hitchhiked to Arizona and saw birds for the summer. And, and so yeah. you, you know, you, you do you go out to Arizona, and you know when you start having these travels further and further as a teenager. You know, when did the idea of doing a big year kind of enter your mind? Well, it, it came to me pretty early on, actually. Um, 
Uh, one of one of my favorite books when I was a kid was um, Wild America by Roger Peterson and James Fisher, just a mm-hmm. classic. It's still one of my favorite books, just wonderful nature writing. And mm-hmm. they were in that book, they described making this big trip around North America. You know, Fisher was from Great Britain, mm-hmm. and he was from Roger Peterson's uh, counterpart right. in England, and he had never been to the New World before. So Roger Peterson says, well, why don't you come over and we'll make a trip around the continent and write a book about it. So they write this great book that's got, uh, this alternation of viewpoints with Roger, who's the very experienced one, talking about things, sort of setting the stage, and then James Fisher writing about his first impressions mm-hmm. of for seeing America for the first time and seeing the birds and wildlife, and it was fabulous. But um, in sort of a footnote in that, the uh, you know, Roger mentioned that. You know, by the way, I was keeping track of my bird list as we traveled, and my my list for that year was 572 species. Which is, you know, that, that seemed pretty neat. Um, so I'd sort of had it in the back of my mind from that that running around for a year to see how many kinds of birds I could see would be a fun thing to do. And I guess it was the the year that I was going to turn 18. I had, By that point, I had discovered that I could get around pretty well by hitchhiking. And so I said to myself, well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just go see if I can do this. I'll see if I could be like the first person to break 600 species in a year in North America. Um, that was, uh, so that was 1972. I started off just full of, um, you know, ambition to go do this thing in 1972. And it was only about a month into the year that I found out that the previous year, three different people had broken 600 in a year. In North America, so it had been done in 1971. So your goalpost got moved on. <laughs> yeah. So I, at that point, I, frankly, I, I gave up. I, I just dropped the idea, um, and didn't pick it up again until uh, the beginning of the following year. And, and what was your goal that year? Uh, well, my goal for that year was to break the record that had just been set uh, by my friend Ted Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, he had had 626 species in 1971, so my goal was to get to 627. 627. <laughs> and, and, you, and you mentioned Ted Parker, and I think, you know, a few birders know that name. But I think, you know, it, he's such an enigma, I think, to a lot of us now who, you know, when we, when we became birders, Ted, he had already passed away or, you know, we were right on the cusp. But what was he like as a birder and as a friend? And Well, he, um, Ted passed away, it's actually 20 years ago. It was 1993. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, a lot of people who knew him still just really miss him intensely. He was um, he was really a, a charismatic individual in in a lot of ways, but just just incredibly talented and incredibly capable of focus. Um, I mean, when I when I met him for the first time, like I was eighteen and he was nineteen. Up to that point, I had thought that I was a pretty good birder, mm-hmm. but he was just so far ahead of everybody else in my circle that um, there was no comparison. I mean, you know, he was, it wasn't just a matter of being very good at spotting birds and very good at identifying them. He had this whole sense of habitat. And we would go someplace new, 
I mean, we were able to travel together quite a bit uh, in the U.S. and Mexico. Um, it was our little our little group of young birders. You know, we'd um, we'd go someplace brand new, and Ted would sort of look around and say, "Okay, up on the top of that ridge, you can see how the forest changes up there. There's there's some different forest type up there, and we should hike up to that ridge and see what's there." And it was just it was just an extraordinary sense of of this this instinct for birds and their behavior and their habitats mm-hmm. and an ability to hear a bird call once and know it for the rest of his life and recognize it when he heard it from you know half a mile away um, just uh, an incredibly talented person and, and and so you know he you write about in Kingbird Highway that I think it was in Kingbird Highway where he would listen to the old bird song and call tapes, but he would be listening in the background. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, we didn't have that that much in the way of resources then. I mean, when we were first birding together, that was the early 1970s. Yeah. You know, you could just go online and look up the voice of any bird in the world. Uh, but there were things like, you know, Irby Davis had done a record of songs of Mexican birds and it was, it was good. Irby Davis was one of those real pioneers who'd gone out with the big bulky rigs to get the recordings of these voices of these birds. And it, was, it was great stuff. And, uh, Buck Edwards had done some of that and had put out some tapes. And, but Ted would be sitting there listening to it, and uh, we'd be listening to the recording of something like the, the Great Black Hawk. And Ted would say, wait, you hear that back in the background? That sounds like a street-headed wood creeper. And <laughs> just... It would be, you know, we we wouldn't even be able to hear the other sound back there. But he was picking it out and and identifying it on the basis of having, you know, been through Mexico once and having heard those things. Been through once, and he was the yeah. expert. And, and and so you're, you know, the time that you were birding, and especially what you write about in, in Kingbird Highway, is that you were in that. I kind of think of it almost like a golden era of birding because you 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 know you went to California and were with the California birders. And what was that scene like? I have to imagine it was really exciting because there was so much being learned and and the challenge of birding was taking hold. Yeah. Oh, it was a, it was a really exciting time. Um, yeah, the the California scene was was really impressive at that point too because at at that point it was only it was only like 10, 12, 15 years earlier that uh Guy McCaskey and others had been running around and discovering sort of the uh, the the vagrant phenomenon on the on the California coast. Mm-hmm. Um up to, through the 1950s it was sort of assumed that western birds would wander east with the prevailing winds, but that eastern birds wouldn't really go west. Um, and Guy McCaskey and, and Rich Talkup and others started exploring some of these um, you know, vagrant traps on the California coast and out in the California desert and discovering that some eastern birds, like black pole warblers, were, were showing up in numbers out there every fall and to a lesser extent in spring. And... It, it wound up, it sort of reversed the assumptions that people had up to that point. Um, and these days, you know, it's it's taken for granted that if you bird hard enough on the West Coast, you can find practically all the migratory eastern birds practically every year. Right. And that it's much harder to find western birds in the east. 
Um, but that was a, that was a completely new thought in the 1960s. And, and because all the ornithologists had just said that it had all this to do with the prevailing wind patterns. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and up to that point, there had been so much more birding coverage in the east that, you know, if a varied thrush goes to Massachusetts, somebody's going to see it. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, so there, there's all this stuff going on uh, all up and down the west coast and even in the interior of the west as well. I mean, the, the birders in Arizona were catching on to it and... Um, just just going out looking for these things and discovering new field marks. And it was, um, there was sort of a, a, a sense that we were, we were being rebels. We were rebelling against the established order of what was known about birds and discovering things that hadn't been suspected before. So it was really an exciting time. Well, you know, and sometimes I see the old pictures of, you know, the, that gang, and it literally looked like a gang. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, the, the long hair and they're young guys and just having a good time. It was, it seemed really magical. It really was. And I, um, I was very lucky to be, uh, to be birding during that era. But I also think that, um, uh, I don't want to slip into just thinking about the good old days yeah. because I feel like there's uh, there's uh, amazing levels of discovery that are going on right now, and I mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm lucky to I have a lot of friends who are young birders. Um, uh, my wife Kimberly was founder of the uh, Ohio Young Birders Club. Um, she you know she won't take credit for it. She says it was a team effort, but. You know, she was the individual who first got the ball rolling to start this thing, and uh, a lot of great people have worked on it since. But you know, as a result of that, I've had a chance to um, uh, interact with a lot of teenage birders, um, both in Ohio and subsequently across the country. And so there are all these birders out there who are in their teens and early 20s, and they're discovering things that nobody had known before. Right. So it's it's not like everything worth knowing was discovered in the 1960s and 1970s. They're yeah. they're finding things that are brand new, and discovering new ways to identify these birds, and focusing on things like the uh, the nocturnal flight calls that, um, you know, that we hadn't really been aware of, and finding new concentration points um, for migratory birds, and they continue. I, I feel like. Um, um, the possibilities out there are still limitless, and there are amazing things that are going to be discovered. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in Montana, we have one of those young birders. We have this gentleman. He's in college now, but Andrew Gutenberg. He just did the cover for the latest birding magazine. Oh, right. Yeah, that was wonderful. And I, a, a great artist and great birder. And I and I got a chance to bird him. When I first time I met him, he was like this 13-, 12-year-old kid yeah. who was going, Eurasian collared dove. <laughs> no, but he was like, he was keyed in on it. And we had, we were kind of aware that they were coming, but it wasn't a big deal. And most people were just passing things off as they drove by the highway. And he was, I remember being with him and he was calling out collar doves, this kid. Yeah. <laughs> Surely you're wrong. Pull over. Okay. You're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yo, isn't it great to see that sort of thing happening? And all the they, old guys had to begrudgingly accept them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 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 so you you bring up you know we had all you know this kind of this this seventies era of birding and you did the big you know you you finally did a, a big year all by hitchhiking 
And what did you do after that? What was kind of the next step for, you know, a 20-something Ken Kaufman? <laughs> well, I guess the next step was for me to sort of struggle around for a while below the poverty level and try to figure out um, how I was going to make a living at this mm-hmm. bird stuff without getting a real job, you know? Um, <laughs> it gets in the way. Real jobs get in the way. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I I had all these ideas at that point about things I wanted to do, but it took a while to get them going. But mm-hmm. fortunately, around that time, uh, the uh, there were bird tour companies that were just started. I mean, today we sort of take it for granted that there are quite a few uh, bird tour companies, mm-hmm. but at that point there weren't very many. Um, but I was lucky enough to, I, I did some like private guiding for people. I, I had moved to Arizona at that point after traveling around. I'd wound up living um, out in Arizona, so I did some, some personal individual guiding of birders. Um, in that area, and I managed to lead some tours uh, for the Golden Gate Audubon Society out of California, and then I got involved with um, the beginnings of, of Wings, a tour mm-hmm. company that Will Russell and Davis Finch started, and I worked with them for several years, and then I moved over to uh, leading tours for Victor Emanuel, mm-hmm. and so I was able to make a living as a tour leader. I was trying to get established as a writer. And what was what was kind of your first endeavor writing? Did you try the field guide first, or? Um, well, I um, I was writing for um, um, my first sort of regular gig was writing for the um, uh, regional reports for what was then called American Birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the journal is now called North American Birds. And it's um, it's now being published by the American Birding Association, but uh, back then it was it was being published by uh, National Audubon Society, and uh, so I, I became one of the regional editors for the Southwest, starting in um, what nineteen seventy five, I think. That's mm-hmm. um, uh, I was like twenty years old, and. Um, so I, I I was writing the columns for that four times a year, and then got an opportunity to write their changing seasons column a couple of times, and um, then managed to talk my way into a position as a, like an associate editor for American Birds, where I was doing sort of copy editing on all the regional reports right. for the whole uh, whole continent. So it just sort of gradually worked my way into things like that. And then when did the Kaufman uh, Guide to Advanced Birding, how did that come about? And... Well, the um, the first book that I did was, was called Advanced Birding, but it was actually in the Peterson series. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'd had the idea for that. Um, I... Well, Roger Peterson came out with a new edition of his Eastern Field Guide in 1980. And it, um, at that point, it was, he hadn't revised the Eastern Guide since 1947. So as you can imagine, by 1980, it really needed to be updated. And the new edition was great in some ways, but it also, it sort of didn't address any of the things that we thought we had been discovering, all these these great new field marks. Mm-hmm. That people have been working on in the uh, you know the 1960s and 1970s, and 
so I, I had the idea that it would be great to do sort of a like a supplement that went into more detail than would fit little field gant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I I did this very careful um, proposal where I, I wrote out an outline. I did some sample chapters and sample illustrations and sent it to Houghton Mifflin, the publisher of the Peterson Guides. And they mulled it over for like six or seven months. You know, they just, they're, well, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. And they finally said, okay. And, um, and I got a contract for it. Mm-hmm. And then I guess that was like 1982. And it took me another eight years to actually finish the thing, but it came out in 1990. Right, and and so you went on. You since then you've gone on to do the, the whole Kaufman series, a field guide. So birds, butterflies, insects, mammals, <laughs> and and the one that really interests me is that you have done a bird guide, but a Spanish language version. Um, sorry, um, yeah. Um, sorry, my wife Kimberly just came home, and I had to say hello to her. Oh, um, I know how that goes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The um, I'm sorry. What we're we talking about? No, no. <laughs> Boy, you really got off track. No, yeah. no. So you you know you've done the whole Kaufman guide and expanded past birds into other taxa, and you've also done a Spanish language bird guide, and I think that's really important because this is one of the only ones I know of. So, what was kind of your thought pattern behind producing a Spanish language guide? Well, I just um, sort of the the basic uh, impetus behind that was um, when I uh, when I started doing quite a bit of public speaking in the like in the nineteen nineties, um, started getting invited to talk to bird clubs and bird festivals and so on. I would go to all these these places and I would notice that the regardless of where where it was, you know, it could be in, you know, Georgia or in Chicago or uh, New Mexico, whatever. The vast majority of the people in the audience would be would be white, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of my best friends are white, you know, but um, it just it didn't look like the local population, mm-hmm. um, and it just it didn't seem like uh, the birding didn't seem to be drawing in like the whole spectrum of, of American society. And, um, you know, I had a handful of friends who were black birders and, you know, I told them about, you know, the sort of the issue and what's involved in uh, bringing in a more diverse group of people into, into birding. And it's, it's still a, a real challenge. But it occurred to me that one issue, you know, that there were, um, according to the, um, the U.S. Census in 2000, at that point, there were 28.1 million citizens of the U.S. who spoke Spanish at home. And, you know, even assuming that most of those people are perfectly fluent in English as well, if Spanish is the language they prefer to speak at home, I thought, well, you can make birding more palatable and more attractive for them if you have a bird guide that's in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So when I did my bird guide, which was published in October of 2000, I... When I when I was even working on it in the in the initial stages, I was thinking it would be great to do a Spanish language edition of this, and 
I, I discussed it with the publishers, and they they were wary of the idea because you know it's expensive to print these things, and they they were concerned that the sales wouldn't be good enough to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And they they said, well, what other bird guides have been what other bird guides have been published in Spanish, and what have the sales been like? And at that point, there weren't any for North America, mm-hmm. and that was sort of the right. point. But so I, I finally decided that. You know, if if I wanted this to happen, I was going to have to be proactive about it. So I, I, I found a translator and I I paid uh, the translator myself and put the whole thing into the page layout, so it was ready to print. At that point, um, fortunately, uh, my editor Lisa White was um, she went to bat for the project and convinced others. Uh, at, at Houghton Mifflin that it was worth doing. And my agent, Wendy Strothman, was also very you know, very supportive and pushed for this to happen. And so the publisher, you know, they, they agreed to take a flyer on it and see what would happen. And, and what was kind of the initial reaction to that? Did, did, did it kind of make some inroads in the Hispanic community or Spanish-speaking community that cultivates more birders, do you think? I, I'm sure it's having some impact. I mean, the first the first printing of it was only like five thousand copies, right. and so my initial goal was to get enough copies out there that they would have to reprint it. And so we've we've met that uh, that goal, and it's been reprinted a couple of times. And so there, you know, there are probably you know like nine thousand plus copies in circulation now. So I know that people are using it, um, and the the main. Um, the main way that it's gotten out there has not been like rabid birders who are Spanish speakers going and finding the book and buying it, mm-hmm. but more a matter of um, people who are concerned about bird conservation um, getting hold of copies and contributing them to mm-hmm. to um, you know different communities and different organizations. Um, we, we've got a thing now is set up through the Black Swamp Bird Observatory where people can can donate copies. And, I mean, the, the retail price is like $19, but for $12, we get it at wholesale, and the $12 covers the cost of the book plus the cost of shipping it out to someplace. So well, that's good. Nobody's making any money on it. You know, we're not making royalties or anything, but... We, you know, for twelve dollars, somebody can donate a copy and have it sent to an organization that will get it into the hands of someone who can use it. Oh, that's great! And, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I love the idea. And and when you did this in the early two thousands, you put this yeah, out. It was, yeah, it was two thousand five when the Spanish edition came out. Uh, how have you? Have you seen changes in you know the demographic makeup of the birding community? Is it? Do you think it's starting to resemble the demographic makeup of America a little more closely? Or it well, it, it's moving in that direction, um, and the the progress is slow, but the the progress is going in that direction. And um, there have been uh, a few. Um, there have been a couple of conferences now on on diversity in the birding community and. We held one here in Ohio that was sponsored by, again, this Black Swan Bird Observatory um, in conjunction with Toledo Metro Parks and the Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge. We put this together and invited in speakers, uh, including John Robinson and Dudley Edmondson, who have done a lot to uh, sort of promote the, uh, you know, the, the importance of this issue. 
And now uh, Dave Magpion has got has started a series of conferences. There have been a couple, and there's going to be a third one this uh, next November, uh, just before the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. Oh, um, it's, it's uh, focus on diversity is the uh, uh, what the conference is called. I love that idea because you know it it's just historically such you know an Anglo dominated activity. Mm-hmm. But and, there's some some great you know some very articulate people now who are um, you know who are black birders who yeah. are uh, helping to spread the word. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned John Robinson and Dudley Edmondson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Doug Gray from Indianapolis who's doing a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drew Lanham, um, he's a professor at Clemson, and he's a, a great outdoors person and a bird and a very articulate writer. Yeah. I don't well, know if you've met Drew. Or, or talk to him, but no, I have. But like, I, I just interviewed for you to to talk with. because I just uh, I'll take that down, and I just interviewed uh, Dave Lindo from the UK, the Urban Bird. Oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and that was you know kind of a side conversation we had as well. So. That's great. Yeah, and there's a, there's a woman out in the Bay Area in California named Rue Map. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Also known as outdoor Afro, yeah, she is doing wonderful things. So it's uh, you know there, there's getting to be more diversity in the community. You've got some of these great uh, leaders who are moving things in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I like to see this. You know, the more diversity come out of birding, and, and it be more inclusive. You know, yeah, because I think conservation, you know, appreciation of nature, and therefore conservation of nature. If you want to get as many people as involved and have as many stakeholders as possible, I think. Absolutely, yeah. It just it means more support for bird conservation is the way I look at it. Yeah, and you know, so kind of getting off of that topic, <laughs> moving on to <laughs> others. Um, you know. Your, your lovely wife came in and she was off camera and you said hello to her. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's kind of a common theme in birding that birding is hard on relationships. You know, people are more <laughs> uh, more obsessed with birding than their partner sometimes. And it's hard for a non-birding partner. And your guys, you know, what I see with your guys' relationship is it seems like it's like birding brought you together. And so what was the story and how did birding <laughs> bring you two together? Yeah, it, it's it's true. I mean, the 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 birds did bring us together. I um, we actually met for the first time at a, a nature festival in South Texas. Uh, Kimberly's from Ohio originally and hadn't really traveled much uh, until I mean, she got interested in birds uh, back in the mid nineteen nineties. But she she hadn't really traveled much, and it was in um, April. 2001, I was speaking at a, a nature festival down in McAllen, Texas, and I was, um, um, and she had gone to Texas, was going to this festival, and there was a field trip that was supposed to be led by Father Tom Pincelli. He's a uh, a Catholic priest who's like this great birder who knows every bird in the Rio Grande Valley, and so he was supposed to be the leader of this field trip, but um, he had uh, some higher calling that day, so he couldn't. So they asked me if I'd lead the trip, and um, so I. She was on that trip, and we had our our first chance to talk at that point. Um, and uh, I thought she was really great, and you know we 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 hit it off well at that point. But then we went our separate ways. I went back to Arizona, and she went to Ohio. And it was uh, a couple of years later that I was invited. I was invited to be the speaker at the banquet for the tenth anniversary of this 
Black Swan Bird Observatory, where she was at that point, uh, she was involved in uh, doing a lot with their banding programs and stuff. So I go to the, I go to speak at the banquet and it's in February in Ohio, you know, and it's, um, so we, we had this, this evening thing and then the following day there's a field trip, but here we are early February, Ohio, there's snow everywhere, there's no birds. Um, so we're walking through the woods with a crowd of like 40 people. Um, I'm trying to make this an entertaining field trip as we look for stuff and, you know, a couple of hours, um, you know, the field trip is winding down. I've, you know, you when you're leading a field trip, you try to be, pay attention to everyone. You know, it's important to pay attention to everyone, talk to everybody there. Um, so I hadn't really had a chance to talk to Kim to speak with. Um, we're heading back toward the parking lot, and suddenly I get hit in the back with this massive snowball um, because she had, you know, decided she wanted to get my attention, so she packs this huge snowball, hits me in the back with it, and everybody is shocked. People are saying, oh, no, you know, you just, you've hit our keynote speaker. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, my response was just to turn around and start throwing snowballs at her, and we developed into this massive, you know, everybody got involved, and we were all just soaked. And Anyway, it made enough of an impression that uh, within a couple of years I had moved to Ohio. Oh, that's amazing! That's <laughs> I like. I like to hear stories like that. You know, the you know, there's the relationship aspect of birding. Yeah, it's wonderful. And you know, it has. She's you know, like you said, super busy with the Black Swamp Bird Observatory, and she's you know, was it the biggest week in birding, and that's coming up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's just as busy as you are, <laughs> or, or more so. Yeah, at this this time of year, getting ready for our big birding week. Um, I mean, there there's a lot that goes into that, and I I really admire the way that she can stay focused on it for months at a time, getting ready for our our big bird event. And, and when is that this year? Oh, this year it's uh, May third through twelfth, and it's um, it's northwestern Ohio. And people who you know who aren't familiar with the area might be surprised, but the the birds are coming north, and they get to the edge of Lake Erie, and they pause. And there's some a series of spots uh, right along the edge of the lake that are just mm-hmm. great habitat for stopover habitat for migrants, and warblers are relatively easy to see there. So. We've been referring to it as the warbler capital of the world. You know, just modest little title. <laughs> very, very modest. Very yeah. modest. And, well, that's, that's not, I've seen, you know, the posts and pictures from that event and the Kirtland's Warbler the one year oh, yeah. that was <laughs> a big to-do. <laughs> In Montana, we haven't even had a yellow warbler yet by that point in the year. Yeah. <laughs> we're a little behind. Uh, you know, it's so funny. when we were first talking here in Arizona – as a kid and you were identifying, you know, moths and cactus and all, you know, besides birds and you've produced, you know, these other field guides covering the other taxa. Um, do do you find that, you know, I'm starting to find a lot more birders who, you know, birders who are into butterflies and, or birders who are in the plants. Do you think that birders are becoming better naturalists? I, I think there's a movement in that direction, and I think it's it's really encouraging to see it. And it may be happening partly because the field guides are getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when when I was a kid and I wanted to identify a dragonfly, I would have to catch it and hold it in the net while I put it through a dichotomous key, looking at the veins in the wing and so on to, to figure out what dragonfly it was. And 
you get down to the end of the description and say, well, by the way, this thing is bright green with black rings on, you know, <laughs> there, there were no illustrations. Right. But as we get more and more uh, illustrated guides, um, it, it gets easier to sort of get past the, uh, to get to the basics on, on these other groups of things. Right. And um, I, plus, I don't know what it was. It seems like back in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was just a kid, there was a sense among some of the birders that you were, if you were paying attention to the non-birds, you were somehow being a traitor. <laughs> you were, you know, you, it was going to take away from your ability to see all the birds that were out there. But um, the attitude seems to be changing, and we find that now on a on on a birding trip, it's okay to stop and spend some time walking armadillo, you know, mm -hmm. or to look at some interesting moth that's sitting on a flower, something like that. Well, and I have always had this idea of, you know, like my first, my well, my first and only book, but, you know, relating habitat and birds and, and grouping birds in, in relation to the, their, prime, their preferred habitat relationships in any given mm -hmm. geography. And... You know, I, I, I'm starting to hear people talk like that a little bit. You know, the, the, they get at the cues. They go, okay, it's ponderosa pine. Okay, this is the suite of birds we should expect. Yeah, that, well, that, that's another, another influence. You know, the, the thing you're talking about with um, the way you've helped get people to focus on, on birds as they relate to habitat. Um, you, you, you start to see the birds in a more three-dimensional way so it's just this colorful little thing sitting up there with a gray background mm -hmm. it's um it's a part of this whole system and you're looking at the habitat and the bird is here you know in this ponderosa pine forest and it's it's going to be eating these insect deer and it's going to be using these plants for its nest material and um, I, I just think it's a much more satisfying approach well, you know, I always, I always tell it, you know, you're, you're deciphering or you're in on the story. Uh -huh. And so then that's when I, you know, like whenever I do tours or something, that allows me to tell a story of, you know, they're playing the game this way to get, you know, such and such resource to get to whatever goal it is. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, it becomes a story. It's not just like, here's this isolated character that's just <laughs> sitting there doing nothing. It's this character that's interacting with others and actually... It, it does become a story. It becomes an adventure. Yeah, and you know yeah. when you have that whole picture of, you know, what plants are out there, what other critters are out there, and the whole symphony they start playing with one another. Yeah, that no, I, I love that. That's um, that that's so much more realistic and so much more fulfilling than just trying to see the birds as little isolated pieces without their background. Well, you know, and I was having the conversation, you know, in an early episode with David Lindo about listers, you know, and especially the Twitcher culture in the UK. And he's like, and he, he was very uh, precise in what, how he phrased it. He says, not all Twitchers are like this, but a lot of them, they go, they see the bird and five minutes later, they're running away and they have no appreciation of what's going on with that bird. And I, I, I've run into a few listers here that are the same way. I mean, they just, it's just more the competition than the actual appreciation for what's going on. Yeah, well, I just, you know, I, I, I run into people like that, and I, I just feel sorry for them. And I, you know, I try to sort of gently nudge people like that in the direction of looking at more different things. And mm -hmm. just for their own sake, just because it, it makes us a much more 
more enjoyable, so much more exciting. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and we're, we're we're you know speaking about listers and how you know that culture of listing. And the thing that's been running through my mind lately is you know that you did a big you did an ABA big year and there's you know uh-huh. of course there's been books like and movies now you know the big year and <laughs> which wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be i actually rather enjoyed it yeah likewise <laughs> i thought i thought oh they're going to turn birders into comic characters and they didn't it was actually done very well but you know the the impact at having you know a big day or a big year and how do we kind of equate those two you know, our impact through carbon footprint and resource utilization versus the enjoyment of listing. Well, it's it's something that I think about a lot. And, you know, back in, um, back in the early 1990s when I was still working for American Birds magazine and they were still being published by Audubon, um, we, we were having these fundraising birdathons every year. And I convinced the powers that be at that point that we should do um, we should do greener birdathons. That we so we we did a we did a walking big day um, one year, and then the following year we did a bicycle big day. And then after that, they went back to doing them by car because they felt like they needed to get higher totals in order to raise more money. But I. You know, this was um, this must have been around 1992, so it was, it was relatively early on, and I was I was pleased that we had sort of set the example, even though a lot of people didn't follow it at that point. Mm-hmm. But these days, I I know a number of people who are doing what they call big bees, big green big years, mm-hmm. where they see how many species they can find, you know, by by bicycle or on foot or by non motorized. Um, uh, transportation, um, just you know, starting out from their from their houses. There's some guys in Michigan who are pretty crazed about this. Who have had you know really big year lists, and they'll ride like 70 miles to go get one bird for the year list. And you know, they I, I guess they wind up being really in good shape too. I was going to say they're going to be really skinny fit birders. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and I. I always thought, you know, that I've done, you know, Montana big years and Montana big days. And, you know, we're in such a... Montana's a big state. (laughs) Well, when we do our big day, we go from the west side of Glacier Park to Fort Peck. We put 1,200 miles on a rig in one day. We rent it. The car rental place loves us. (laughs) Well, there's there's always carbon offset programs, and that's what I was wondering, you know, because you know we're kind of talking about doing it, and we're going to fit four guys in one rig, and you know, how do we make it where either we're doing carbon offset or that we're doing you know some sort of awareness so that that the final the final outcome of it is a benefit rather than a a debt. Yeah, I think that's that's important. I think the carbon offset thing can work. Um, I'm I'm aware of a few programs um, people trying to do that, and so far it's um, the doesn't seem to be as much buy-in from the birding community as I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, there's been an attempt to do that here at the um, well at the biggest week in American birding and at the Midwest Birding Symposium, trying to get people to sort of think about that if they're coming in from from out of state. 
just calculate the carbon footprint and contribute to something that's going to you know plant x number of trees to uh, compensate for that yeah and we've talked about you know trying to rent like a prius or you know a hybrid of some type and mm-hmm. try to keep keep the footprint lower that way as well yeah well it's worth thinking about it, so you know and so you you were saying that you use it as a fundraiser and, you know, in Montana, they kind of try it, and it hasn't really set as a fundraiser for conservation. Do you, do you know some, like, you know, people are doing really successful fundraisers or awareness campaigns using big years or big days or bio blitzes? There are, there are some groups that have done it really effectively through the uh, World Series of Birding in mm-hmm. uh, New Jersey. The, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for a number of years was making that one of their major fundraisers of the year. They would send a team to the World Series of Birding, and they would wind up uh, getting pledges for really significant amounts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is possible in some cases to do that. And uh, the Point Reyes Bird Observatory was doing that a number of years ago, raising money for the protection of Mono Lake when they were sort of on the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm glad to hear that there's some people using, you know, instead of it being a totally selfish or self-centered endeavor, that it has some bigger context. Well, yeah, but it's it's also, I have to say, it's fun, too. I, oh, I tell people that, you know, doing big days is like my one vice, you know. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't gamble or smoke or drink, but, you know, I like to do big days. <laughs> oh, I I love doing our I love doing our big day, you know, and it's I we, this is a little side story, but we did you know we traveled this twelve hundred miles. We start at midnight on the west side of Glacier Park. We're all the way out in the prairie at Fort Peck, and we had the rental car. I was driving, and apparently I was driving because we ended up in the campground after we saw our last bird, which was a great horned owl. Yeah, we're driving, and I wake up. And literally, I'm like, oh, where are we? <laughs> and my partner's like, we're in the campground. You drove us here. Huh. <laughs> I see. Well, I, I had driven through town and down the hill, through the campground. <laughs> well, you know, there there's some birds that supposedly can, can fly in their sleep. So, you know, birders can drive in their sleep. That's great. <laughs> I, I think that's what happens when you have too many Red Bulls through the day and lots of sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Ken, what, what's kind of next for you? What do you what do you have coming up in the hopper for you? Um, well, there are a couple of things right now. Uh, Kimberly and I just finished doing a uh, a field guide to the nature of the New England states uh, that came out just last fall, uh, just like four months ago, and that that was great fun because it covers like twelve hundred species and it's it's everything. It's the common butterflies and oh, wow. wildflowers and mushrooms and seashells and just sort of the whole spectrum. Um, of, of conspicuous nature in New England. And we're doing a similar book now for the Midwest. Um, and uh, my friend Jeff Sayer, who's a great botanist, has joined in on that. And so we're, you know, we're going to have better coverage of the flowers flowers and things than we did. For, um, anyway, so that's a lot of fun. Oh, that has to be. And so you're doing little short, like, half-page, third-page treatments for each species? Uh, it's a lot shorter than that because often it's, it's supposed to be a field guide and trying to cover a lot of species, so it's it's pretty compact and right. Yeah, you know, just just very short treatments uh, for most things. Oh, uh, just basic identification. Oh, that be and so are you kind of planning to kind of go to each 
region of the country eventually and keep expanding that outwards or yeah if the um, if the publisher continues to feel that it's that it's worth supporting then we'll mm-hmm. keep doing that and but you know the midwest or we did new england first because that's where the publisher is located and the midwest is our backyard so you know we got to cover that the two that make sense and it, yeah. then probably like with the southeast or mid-atlantic next i'd make Lots of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's anything like that. It's sort of a dance between the authors and the publisher because, you know, the publisher has to be supportive of the idea. Or there's no point in doing it. Mm-hmm. So so you, you came out with – this came out in September, you said? Uh, the, the New England book came yeah. out in uh, last October. Last October. And then yeah. are, you, are you kind of on the festival circuit this spring or – you say more homebound. <laughs> I've done some uh, some public speaking. I just came back from teaching a bird ID workshop in Texas, and then speaking in New York City, and it was interesting to pack for that trip. Um, <laughs> but now I'm I'm uh, mostly at home now. Aside from, well, we'll have a lot of action around this biggest week mm-hmm. in birding here. But I'm also uh, I'm, I'm working on a narrative account about spring migration. Um, because I, you know, the field guides are interesting, but not, uh, maybe sometimes not as, as creative as what I'd like mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book about, um, just trying to, trying to capture the, the science and the magic of the, uh, the big spring migration here. Uh, and this kind of a person, kind of a personal account, or are you doing interviews or? It's, um, it's personal. I mean, there's um, um, some of some of my the the local people, some of my friends here are going to wind up being characters in the book, whether they want to be or not. Um, but so much of it is just the the birds themselves mm-hmm. and the uh, the phenomenon of these things. Some of them, a bird that weighs less than an ounce, coming from South America and stopping off in Ohio on its way to Alaska. Um, it's um, it's phenomenal enough that if I could really describe it the way it is, it would make for a great book. Right. So I'm I'm struggling with that, but um, I'm having a lot of fun with it too. Oh, I'm sure. And do you have any kind of idea when completion, or is it just the labor of love, and it'll be done when it's done? <laughs> um, I think it'll be done when it's done. But I'm I think my sort of my field work and note-taking for it will be done at the end of this spring because I, I took really detailed notes last year. I'm taking more detailed notes this year, and I'm going to sort of blend things together. And rather than just describe one spring season, it's, it's going to be more of a generic thing. Well, that'd be great. Well, that sounds wonderful. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of our hour, <laughs> and I try to keep these around, a, around an hour, less people get too much info. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but, want that to happen. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I have to thank you so much, Ken, for for being a guest and and suffering my questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's not suffering at all, Rad. I really appreciate. Um, I really like your approach to things, and I really like your um, your attitude about uh, about birding and natural history and conservation. And so, thank admire you. The kinds of things that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. It's and a real talk with you. It was. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, we'll see you later. Okay. Well, I hope so. Thanks very much. All right. Talk to you later, Ken.